Hello, everyone, and welcome to EuroNurse. We meet every Saturday at 9 a.m. Central Daylight Time. My name is Vic Sinise, and I'm the host for today's show. If you're watching this on YouTube, you can learn more about us by visiting our website at euronurse.com. Our first half hour is going to be devoted to general questions, so feel free to start adding or putting in any questions that you might have. Our second half hour will take a deeper dive into a subject. Today, Andrea Strong will be covering Urology 101, the ins and outs of catheters. Now, to submit a question, simply click on the Q&A button and type in your question. So we're going to do a little different thing today for our start. I have a poll I'm going to send out to everyone. I'd like you to take a, a minute or two just to fill that out. In the meantime, I'd like to let our panelists introduce themselves and tell us a little bit about themselves. Let's start with Andrea. Take it away. Hi, my name is Andrea Strong. I'm a nurse practitioner in uh, Milwaukee, Wisconsin. I did work as a um, urology nurse for about a decade before that. I did inpatient, I did outpatient. I'm certified as a nurse in urology and I look forward to um, hanging out with y'all today. Uh, next, we'll have uh, Lori. Yeah, hi everybody. Good morning, my name is Lori Atkinson and I've been in urology for 24 years now. Um, I'm a certified urology registered, registered nurse and proud to be a part of euronurse.com. Uh, thanks, Lori. And John? Hello, everyone. My name is John Lynn from Gilbert, Arizona, a suburb of Phoenix. I'm a urologist and uh, look forward to bringing value to everybody today. All right, great. Well, thanks, everybody. Um, thanks all of you for showing up. We've got a nice uh, group of attendees here. I did find out that I don't think you attendees can see who's all here, but April, welcome, Carol, Claire, Jackie, Jennifer, Katie, Neil, Rachel, Rebecca, Robert, Susie, and Tessie. I see these questions are starting to come in, and I'm going to leave the poll going a little bit longer. Just uh, we got a really good show for you today, some interesting things about catheters. A lot of questions have been coming in. So the first thing I was asking people in a short answer is where, where you're coming from. How many of the previous episodes have you attended? So it looks like uh, we got a lot of newcomers or, or not. I'm sorry. We have one newcomer. It's my first time attending a lot that have at least seen one episode. The majority we've got several others that have seen uh, several of them. And even two out of the 10 that responded saw six. So that's great. I'm glad that everybody's coming in and seeing these. Um, so have you ever watched the previous episode of our webs on our website? That's our euronurse.com website. And 29% of you had said yes. Um, those that said no, I hope you know that if you go to euronurse.com, you can watch old episodes on our website. And my fourth question was, how did you find out about Euronurse? And that was one I was really curious about. Um, we do advertise on Euronurse Connect every week just to let people know from Suna, the Suna site. And seven out of seven, 100% found it that way. One of you was learned by a friend. So whichever friend you told, thanks a lot for spreading the word. And feel free to tell all your friends about us. We're glad to get you to join. Number five, I opened the feed 15 minutes before the official program starts. And as you probably noticed today, we do a lot of chit-chatting, and I wondered what you thought of that. And we found that the majority said either I like getting on early and listening to the panelists chat, or I don't join, join early, so I don't know about this feature. So for those that 
and nobody said they didn't want us to, to chat. So I guess it's a good thing. So for half of you that didn't know you could start early, I do open it up at a quarter two. You can get on, make sure that your connection's there, and you're going to see the panelists uh, kind of setting up their mics and stuff and just some general chit-chat. Oh, there is a button here that says share the results. Look at that. Nice. So you can actually see what it showed. So as I said, learning uh, learning curve on some of this stuff, but if you don't try it, you'll never figure it out. So that's why I'm fooling around with it now. I'm going to go to, let's see, I want to see if we have any questions coming in from our group. Uh, nothing so far. Feel free to ask those general questions. But in the meantime, I am going to switch over to a question that I received ahead of time. So you guys can submit your questions before the meeting and we'll give us a little time to think them over. Um, but anyway, this one came in from Katie Bortel, who said, how many silver Foley catheters in long-term patients, how many use silver Foley catheters in long-term patients? And Katie was a research nurse in many studies. So I've actually invited Katie to come in and join us as a panelist um, in case she wants to do some, some of her own talking. I'm going to bring her in here. So Katie, if, if you get the click, just go ahead and click on and it'll bring you in. Um, so the other thing is I brought the conclusion of what the study that she had sent me showed. And interesting, it said the risk of infection declined by 21% among study wards randomized to silver-coated catheters and by 32% among patients in whom silver-coated catheters were used on the wards. So use of the more expensive silver-coated catheters appeared to offer cost savings by preventing excess hospital costs from non-noscomial UTI-associated catheter use. So Katie, do you have anything uh, to add to that? Well, the cost of uh, the catheters have come down because I was doing just a little research on it since I knew we would be doing this because they used to be cost prohibited, but they've come down. I worked for Medline for about two years and I was involved in a lot of the studies, especially I was at Yale. So I worked with the infection control doctor there. I went to Texas and I was through Louisiana. So we were doing several studies. And yeah. it was interesting how long-term, I'm not talking short-term because, you know, it just seems that you try and get patients off catheters. One of the main things people did is always put in a larger catheter. And I know it's the bane of urology nurses when you see that, but the, the silver catheter, like silver dressings, I mean, there is uh, a lot of research that proves that. Yeah. It's something I don't always think about is the use of a silver catheter. Um, attend, our panelists, we have a lot of you. If you've got something you want to add to the talk, just put a finger up so I can call on you and know that you wanted to speak about it. Lori? I was just curious about allergies to those catheters. Very little. Yeah. Silver is one metal like um, that... There's few allergies. There's always going to be somebody, but there's very few allergies that I had seen. And we did, oh, let's see, probably about eight to a thousand patients that we had worked on. There was uh, me and another nurse and we did the teaching. I did the actual, you know, hands-on, but it was interesting. We saw very few. And Andrea? 
So I haven't used these catheters in practice, but I was wondering if there are any difficulties getting insurance coverage for these. Not for long term, as far as I know, because they've come down in price. I mean, they are just a you know, probably a few cents to a dollar more because they've proven it. And since there's so many white papers on it and it's they've been using these for, for many years, um, they will pay for it, especially long term, because the the outcome is a decrease in the infections and complications. Thank you. That's a good point. It seems like the the cost is is offset by the decrease in infections. And we know, you know, urinary tract infection and hospitalization is a disaster when it comes to Medicare doesn't want to reimburse for hospital acquired infections. So that's great. Um, again, uh, attendees out there, if you have any questions, this is our general question time. Feel free to submit any questions that you may have. We've got Katie on if you've got some more questions on her research with the uh, silver catheters, throw those in there. If we don't get any questions, that's fine too, because then we'll just move on to our second part of the program, which is our catheters talk anyway. So that's why I like that as a good segue into it. Uh, Vic, I can see that one of the participants had raised their hand. Oh yeah. Paula Wagner, did you want to say something? You could put it in as a Q&A. We don't have, I can see you raised your hand. But... And for people who are watching, it doesn't have to be catheter-related related questions. It could be anything that you're encountering in your practice. Ah, here we go. So Paula Wagner did get her question here. Often you need a document to get silver-coated Foley catheters covered. So we have to have documentation. I'm guessing a urinary tract infection. Is that right, Katie? Uh, several. Uh, yeah. You so have recurrent. To have yeah. And also, you know, if a patient is allergic to um, the, the some of the catheters, I mean, it's coated with uh, silicone, a lot of them. Bard is making them, um, Medline's making them, and I'm not sure about the other companies, but there's a few companies that are making them now. And they're not, you know, Foley catheters. We've seen allergies to certain ones, so you got to still be careful, but yeah, documentation for anything. I mean, yeah, that's, that's the key to it. And, uh, at least I try to remind me, are they normally latex catheters with the silver coating or the, the silicon that they use? There's, they're mostly silicone. Uh, okay. and you know, we replace catheters every 30 days, just out of habit, but there's some research that shows that the silver catheter can stay in longer. There, um, I've read some articles that said um, that the silver stays on for 60 to 90 days, approximately. Everybody is different, but it doesn't have to be changed every 30 days. I think that's just something that we came up that it should be because of uh, incrustation and, you know, patients are, should be seen about every 30 days or so, but they've stayed in longer. Good. Um, Paula Wagner wrote in that in our practice, you can only have a long-term Foley in if you're in hospice. So you know that, anything about that? I'm not sure of. Um, there's a lot of long-term rehab centers and everything, you know, that uh, that do use the catheters. Andrea, is your talk addressing silver catheters at all or? No, it's not. But That's... I had an additional question um, mm -hmm. for Katie. 
I'm wondering, is there any research on these catheters having less biofilm buildup, less infestation? Yes. yes. Uh, I sent Vic another article. I think it's in that. But uh, yeah, it it does show that. Yeah, Katie sent several articles to me, and I'm going to try to post those up on our Euronurse uh, website to have that um, any research things that you guys send, I can post them there and you can download those articles to read yourself. So I will include those. Um, Paula Wagner stated, the literature notes that the only cath that can decrease complications is a silicon catheter. Interesting. Silicone can be coated with silver though. Yeah. I know we're going to have October the 8th. I'll give you a little heads up. I've got a speaker by the name of Todd Thompson, who's a uh, VA uh, nurse, advanced practice nurse, and he's going to be talking about the complicated catheter problems and how they've solved them. And he's got, uh, apparently he said that he's taking catheters that were, you know, clogging in a few weeks and making them last the full time between normal changes. So it's going to be an interesting talk. I think he'll address a lot of this information that we're discussing. And it's important. I think there's, you know, a big concern about what do you do when you have these people coming in every other week with a block catheter. What do you do in the bag turning purple? And he's got some solutions. So we're looking forward to bringing him in in a few weeks. So be sure to tune in for that one. And if there's any other general questions, uh, catheter questions can probably wait till after Andrea's uh, talk, but otherwise I'm gonna, gonna move it over to Andrea's talk. And thanks Katie for coming on board. I'll put you back over to the other side. And Andrea, I'm gonna let you go ahead and take over as uh, screen sharing. Are you able to view my screen okay? Uh, I, I can see your screen, but you need to put it into the play mode because we're seeing everything okay. right now. There we go. All right. Um, so my name is Andrea Strong. I'm a nurse practitioner. Um, I did work for as a nurse uh, for many years in urology. Um, I'm currently in Wisconsin. And we're talking about catheters today. This is a longer presentation. It's about 50 slides. So we're gonna cut it in half. So today I'll do part one, and then in the future I'll do part two. So here are a few of the objectives. You don't need to read through those. Um, so today I'm gonna cover indwelling catheters, specimen collection techniques, leg bag teaching and specialty catheters. Uh, next time I'll be covering clean intermittent catheterization, Superpubic catheters and external urinary catheters and bladder scan. Well, we might have time for CIC today. We'll see how it goes. Um, so, indwelling catheters, UTIs or um, CAUTIs, are the most common hospital acquired infections, and 80% of these are due to indwelling catheters. Urosepsis mortality rates are reported as high as 25 to 60%. This is really significant, and I think this is a really important role that nurses can play in preventing these um, infections. So whenever you're placing a catheter, you first want to ver verify the patient's allergies. If they have a latex allergy, you'll want to use a silicone catheter. These are the clear catheters. And if they have an iodine allergy, you'll want to use an alternative cleanser most employers will have a specific protocol that you'll need to follow on what kind of alternative cleanser you need to use. Uh, ideally, you wanna use the smallest French size, 
unless indicated otherwise. So there are some scenarios where you want to use a larger catheter. Um, and sometimes that's because the catheter keeps clogging off with biofilm or possibly small stones. If the patient is bleeding or expected to have some bleeding, you may want to use a larger catheter to prevent that from clogging off. If the patient has had any augmentation to their bladder using bowel, that bowel will still create mucus. And in those cases, you want to use a larger French size with a larger lumen to prevent that from clogging off as well. And then you always wanna ask the patient if they've ever had a surgery involving the urinary tract. This is really um, important for our emergency room staff or urgent care staff to ask the patients because sometimes these artificial urinary sphincters are not addressed. Um, and if you place a catheter with an artificial urinary sphincter that's engaged in the closed position, you can cause uh, damage to the patient's urethra. You could also damage the device to the point where it needs to be replaced. Um, so this is a picture of an um, artificial urinary sphincter, also known as AUS. So this is generally used for patients who have stress urinary incontinence in males. I understand that in Europe, they're doing some testing on a female artificial urinary sphincter, but I don't think that's ready for prime time yet. Um, but for our males, this is what the device looks like when it's implanted. And the cuff will remain in a closed position so that the patient remains continent. And then there's a small pump that's implanted into the scrotum. The patient can push that button, which will remove the solution from the cuff over to the balloon, opening up the urethra so that the patient can void, and then it will slowly reclose. So if a patient needs a surgery or an emergency catheter placed, you wanna make sure that you're either asking the patient about that. If they're unconscious, we tell all of these patients to wear a medical alert bracelet that states that they have an artificial urinary sphincter. Um, or if you're not sure and you wanna double check, you can palpate the scrotum and you'll be able to feel the pump in there for an artificial urinary sphincter. There's also pumps in the scrotum for um, penile prosthesis as well, but that's another way you could do it in a pinch. And you'll need to have that deactivated by a urology specialist before you place any catheters into these patients. For males, ideally you wanna insert the catheter all the way to the Y hub, and that's going to prevent insertion or sorry, balloon inflation in the patient's urethra. Um, if the balloon is inflated in the urethra or the prostatic urethra, it can cause permanent scar tissue for that patient, which could require future surgeries and procedures. So always check for urine flow before you inflate that balloon. I'll say it again, always check for urine flow before inflating the balloon, and that'll help prevent urethral damage. And whenever you're inserting a catheter or you're teaching patients how to do clean intermittent catheterization, make sure that there's no lint, no fuzzies, no hair, no nothing that goes in with that catheter. If it does, the body will likely form a stone around that piece of hair or piece of lint or whatever foreign object gets accidentally pushed into the bladder. 
Um, so here's a picture of stones, just to remind you. Um, so indwelling catheters, it's no longer recommended to test the balloon. Um, I did my undergraduate nursing degree a few years ago now, but at the time it was really important that you had to test the balloon before you insert the catheter. And that was even part of our checkoff was, you know, make sure you inflate it to check it. We don't recommend that anymore. And the reason for that is because it's very unlikely that there's going to be a manufacturing problem where the balloon's not going to remain inflated. In fact, I've only ever seen that one time. And if you inflate the balloon and then deflate it, it stretches the material and it can create a little lip around the catheter, which can cause pain or abrasions when it's being inserted. Again, try to use the smallest catheter size possible unless there's a clinical indication to use a larger catheter. And, you know, if you're inpatient or outpatient or in any long-term care facility, if the catheter stops draining and you're not sure, is it clogged or does the patient have low urine output, you can always do a bladder scan with the catheter in to see if it's empty or not. Um, indwelling catheters, they are color-coded. So uh, white, that little... Um, it's like a little circular piece where you inflate the balloon. It will be color-coded. So white is a 12 French. Green is a 14 French. 16 French is orange. 18 French is red. 20 French is yellow. 22 French is purple. And 24 French is blue. So if you're ever in a scenario where you're not sure, you can ask the patient. If you're triaging a phone call, you can ask them to look at the color or just get a quick visual reference for yourself on those colors. Uh, so just to review insertion for indwelling catheters for a male, always pre-clean the site, always retract the foreskin if the patient's not circumcised, cleanse the meatus um, three times using a new swab in a circular motion from the uh, meatus down. And once the catheter's placed, always make sure that you return the foreskin to its original position. If failure to do so could cause um, the patient to have some discomfort and it can create a tight band um, in that area. So you can use a coude catheter for males with an enlarged prostate. Um, sometimes I see coude catheters used in other scenarios as well, but generally it's for an enlarged prostate and that helps navigate the anatomy through the urethra. And if resistance is met at the urinary sphincter, a couple tips is you can always ask the patient to cough, which may open that sphincter a little bit and help you insert the catheter. So coude catheter, for those of you who are maybe new to urology, it has a little curved tip at the end and coude means elbow in French. Another tip for those of you who may be new to urology is when you're in, in, inserting an indwelling Foley catheter, there's a tiny little bump at the hub. I've got a photo here that points to that bump. That will show you the direction that the curve is facing. So as long as that little, little notch there is facing towards the patient's abdomen, then it will be in the correct position to navigate around the prostate. We'll move on to female catheterizations. So what's the number one reason for failed female catheterization? It's poor lighting and poor positioning. So if you're having difficulty, I would recommend 
getting the patient on a table, ideally one that you could elevate, make sure that there's really good lighting in the room. You could even place a few pillows underneath the patient's lower half of the body to get a better view of the urethra. If you meet your resistance, the urethra might be kinked due to a prolapse. You could consider reducing that prolapse by inserting one or two fingers into the vagina, and you may have a bit of an easier time inserting the catheter for a female. So overall cauti prevention tips. So prevent kinks in the catheter. And when you're having patients in the outpatient setting, you're placing this catheter, make sure that they're aware that they're always looking at these catheters. I had a patient recently who came in, they had a stat lock on the leg and somehow it twisted itself and it was completely kinked off. Um, you wanna prevent dependent loops. So when you're in the inpatient setting, and the patient's in bed, you have the Foley catheter hung on the side of the bed, make sure it's not looped around because that can increase risk of cauti. Always use a catheter stabilizing device. Um, so they have stat lock stickers. They also have um, the um, pieces that wrap around the leg to hold it in place. Um, you want to perform catheter care daily. Don't allow the drainage bag to rest on the floor. And most importantly, remove the catheter as soon as possible. Keep the drainage device below the level of the bladder. I'm sure we've all seen it where patients came in with their Foley bag flipped over their shoulder like a backpack or something. Um, empty the bag when it's a third full to a half full. Encourage adequate fluid intake and that'll be about 30 milliliters per kilogram per day and use the smallest French size possible. Um, as far as cauti symptoms, the most common is fever followed by suprapubic pain. You can also have flank pain, catheter obstruction, altered mental status, particularly in our elderly patients, uh, low blood pressure, um, and in spinal cord injury patients, you can have those atypical symptoms and sometimes autonomic dysreflexia in those patients. So according to the core curriculum uh, for urologic nursing, you should always change the entire catheter system before initiating antibiotic treatment. And if you're obtaining a culture, then you'll wanna switch out the catheter for a new one and obtain the culture from the new catheter. Indwelling catheter removal, make sure all of the fluid is removed from the balloon before you remove it. Um, sometimes, you know, generally speaking, we put 10 milliliters into that balloon, but you will find sometimes there's 20 milliliters or 30 milliliters. So make sure that it's, it's all deflated before you try to remove the balloon. If you meet a lot of resistance, stop and notify the provider. Sometimes the balloon can crystallize if it's been inflated with saline. Sometimes there's infection that's caused a lot of biofilm buildup. You can also have incrustation. So you'll see these catheters, once they come out, it looks like there's a bunch of barnacles attached to the side. Um, and then the silicone catheter loses balloon water faster and it can cause a lip that forms on the side as you're removing these catheters. So for general tips on leg bag teaching, keep the bag below the bladder, 
empty the bag every four to six hours or when the volume starts to reach 400 milliliters. Clean daily, or sorry, clean the daytime bag and nighttime bag. We say warm soapy water and let it hang to dry. Um, I have seen all kinds of different education provided to patients. I've seen vinegar used, I've seen bleach used. So whatever your facility is, is doing, I think is just fine. Uh, clean the ports with alcohol before reconnecting. And then this is just a little fun fact. Where did the word French size start? Um, it's this inventor. Uh, that's where the name came from. And excuse me, I'm not going to try to pro <laughs> uh, pronounce his name. Um, but he was also contributed with the development of the modern syringe. Uh, we'll cover specimen collection real quick. Um, so don't disconnect the tubing to collect a specimen, ideally you, in an indwelling catheter. Ideally, you wanna scrub the sample port with an alcohol pad for 15 seconds, allow that to dry, and then you can use a syringe to pull your sample off of the catheter. Always collect the gray tube first. So if there's an order for um, a culture and an analysis, you'll wanna pull the gray tube first, which is your um, culture sample. You'll invert the yellow tube eight to 10 times. And for your gray tube, for urine cultures, you're supposed to shake the tube vigorously and then send it to the lab within two hours. And this is just a reminder, we've got our gray top here for the urine culture and he's number one or she. Um, so I think at this time, we'll save the specialty catheters for the next presentation. Thank you. Thank you, that was really good. If, and Oh, good, so you've got us back to our normal view. All right, great. Well, we've got a lot of good questions coming in here. I thought of a few of my own too. So let's get start with, started with Robert uh, Fulling is the only inpatient long-term catheter for ambulatory chronic catheter patients also. That makes sense? Is the only inpatient long-term catheters or for ambulatory chronic catheter patients also. I think he's referring to silver-coated silver uh, catheters. Probably back to that silver one. Yeah, that's right. Thanks. And we, we don't have Katie on right now to, as an answer, but I don't, I'm not sure if, that's, if they're used for ambulatory at all, the silver. Um, let's go on to the next question. Sorry about that. Robert will try to get an answer if Katie can write it in. Uh, Paula Wagner. You need a large cath for hematuria and clot retention rega regarding slide seven. Why not just change of irrigate the why not just change or irrigate the foley if poor drainage? Andrea, what do you think of that? I think I think I'm understanding the question correctly. Oh, I think you were referring to the bladder scanning, uh, bladder scan for a catheter that's in. Yeah, absolutely. You can definitely irrigate it and see if that's doing. Um, you know, if that unclogs the catheter as well, absolutely. Or you can use a bladder scanner if there's any uncertainty. I think um, my point was just that you can use a bladder scanner on a patient who has an indwelling catheter if you feel that you need to. Yeah, that's a, a good point. Uh, Paulus Wagner said, you can also use one half of the speculum if poor visualization of the urethra. Very that's good cool. tip. Very good, good. tip. Thank you. Good tips. 
that's what we uh, are looking for as far as, you know, more than just questions sometimes is your own personal, um, what you've seen happen throughout. Um, I have a question. We had, before we you, were go talking, on. you were talking about uh, putting in a catheter and the, uh, you know, waiting to till you see the return of urine before you start filling the balloon. Now I've had experience where the gel blocks the catheter and if they don't have a lot in their bladder, you may not see a return. Correct. Yeah, I, mean, I, I didn't realize that, that the gel could maybe block it as well. Yeah, that's a tough one. But I, I would say if you're up to the Y hub, um, start to inflate the balloon and, and really make sure that the patient's not experiencing any pain as you inflate that balloon. If they experience any pain, stop and, and make sure you're not inflating the balloon because it could be in the prostatic urethra. If, if I'm unsure, what I do is I'll go ahead and just put 20 or 30 cc's of fluid in there. And when it comes back, usually you'll have a tint of a yellow color. Yeah, I like that technique too, just to go ahead and irrigate it and make sure that it irrigates. Because I've actually put in catheters where it'll get stuck and fold over on itself. So the tip is actually then aiming out. And then when you try to put any fluid into the balloon, it, obviously it's kink, so it won't uh, uh, do that. Or if you try to irrigate it, it's kink, so it won't allow any irrigant. It's a good way to tell. I think uh, going back to Paula's comment, you need a large catheter for hematuria and clot retention. Why not just irrigate? Irrigation is one option. The other is to uh, sometimes simply manipulating the catheter, pushing it in slightly or maybe rotating it. So maybe the, the port that is, that is inside the bladder is not possibly blocked by the bladder lining or the bladder mucosa. And sometimes just that simple manipulation will allow drainage of the catheter without any manual irrigation. Yeah, it's a good point. And Paul Wagner also uh, made a note here, changed position on the legs too. I'm sure that has to do with the stat lock, whether you have that on the right leg, left leg, or all the time in one leg. Really you know, great point. I had a question regarding the stat lock. So we have uh, multiple patients that they don't have that slack from the tip of the penis to the leg to actually put a stack lock, stat lock without pulling. And a lot of people don't want the extension tubing, you know, or even, even the extension tubing is probably not gonna help because if you're using the stat lock and you're putting that catheter in a stat lock, it pulls. So I just leave it off and I just make sure that they keep their leg bag above their knee. Yeah, I would add to that. I just use tape in that case where you can tape the actual, you know, tubing from the catheter rather the stat lock relies on that little Y port to hook up. So you can tape it below that if you're just taping directly to the tube, but I strongly encourage some way to anchor it so that it's not pulling. So you don't have that constant pressure every time they move. And as somebody who had to wear a catheter, that makes a huge difference. It's just much more comfortable if you don't have that constant pull. And a, a good point from uh, Paula on the changing the, you know, leg from left leg, right leg, I mean, how many of us out there have seen the filleted penis from the urethral erosion that long-term catheter can cause? And the excoriation from the, the stat lock itself. When you pull it off, you're, you know, these elderly are very, they have very fragile skin. So a lot of times you want, just want to change it to give it a break. Yeah. yeah. I, I've been surprised in my practice. There are younger, healthier patients who will have um, some erosion and some breakdown at the meatus just from like 10 days of a catheter insertion. So 
yeah, it can, it's really important to alternate right leg and left leg for these patients. Yeah, good points. Um, Paula Wagner, the bladder scan costs $400 in California. Wow. Really? Wow. Maybe at the hospital. <laughs> I don't think that's the reimbursement. I, I'm sh I'm sure, but I, I'm not surprised. Yeah, I mean, it is it is an expensive test. Um, with with the facility fees at the hospital, it may cost four hundred. It, it may the hospital may get reimbursed four hundred dollars, but that is nowhere close to what private practices uh, get reimbursed. Uh, Paula's comment about using half of the speculum for poor visualization of the urethra in a female. The only times that I've had difficulties, granted my experience is not as extensive as most of you, when it comes, I recall vividly trying to, being called by the nurses because they couldn't get a catheter in, in a, a patient in the ICU during training. And really the only problems are, as you mentioned, uh, Andrea, they can't see, so good lighting is important. But we it was a morbidly obese lady the main thing is we just needed more help to to retract the vulva and the labia. And once you can see, then the catheter went in without any problems. So sometimes getting extra help because of the patient's habitus may be important. And I think that even with uh, using a half a speculum, you need help anyway, because I don't know how you do that by yourself. Yeah. Well, half of the speculum goes posteriorly, right? You're holding it posteriorly, but then you still have the lateral tissue mm -hmm. that obstructs the urethra that's anterior. And sometimes it's not right there. The depth of the vulva is pretty extensive. So you need two people, some, pe some people to hold the leg, some people to retract the labia, and then with or without the speculum just to get in. Yeah, that's a good point. It's rarely obstruction, although some females can have, a, you know, a, a stricture of the urethra just as much as a male can from previous catheterizations, but it's all visualization. A quick story, when I was an orderly and I was being, I was in nursing school, the nurses on the floor wanted to train me on how to put in female catheters. And their technique was put a catheter in, and if it doesn't drain urine, get another catheter and put that one in. And eventually you'll block everything that's not the urethra. And I'm like, that doesn't make any sense. I said, shouldn't we just look for the urethra? Well, you could do that too. How things changed. Paula also uh, Paula also mentioned that uh, she also always put in normal saline in the bladder prior to changing the foley. I think that was uh, Lori's comment, right? To irrigate. Yeah, well, either before or after. I know that I, for pubic tubes, I tend to put a little bit of water in first just because I want to be sure when I put it in, it, it, at least I get that return because super pubic tubes, when you, you don't usually get a return if you do it without water. And of course, when you remove the existing catheter after you put the water and of course it's going to start spilling out and that's where you really want to hurry up and get it in. But, but that's how I do it just to ensure that, especially for super pubic tubes, I can get it's, them in. Especially when that super pubic tract is relatively new, you want to make sure that it's actually in the right position when you replace the catheter. Yeah, good point. Um, Paula also made a note that the cath company makes connecting tubing or a belly bag for day use. That's, that's uh, sometimes something that we don't always look for is like the belly bag. Our um, doctors, our providers do not like the belly bags for the reason that it's above. Um, it's not really by drainage. So they, they tend to get more infection in their opinion. Yeah. I have... 
I have Go a few ahead, patients who, who really like to use the belly bag and, and I will allow them to use that. I haven't seen personally an uptick in infections with the use of the belly bag, um, but then I've only been in practice less than a year. So I guess the future will tell. It, it seems that maybe it wouldn't drain as well since it's pretty much flush at the same level as the bladder. Um, but some patients really like the belly bag so that they can conceal it easier. Um, and be able to wear shorts out and about without their leg bag showing. Yeah, I agree. I did talk to the designer of the belly bag and asked that question, how does it drain when it's at the same height of the bladder? And apparently the, the, the engineering behind it allows it to drain and not reflux. And I had many patients that do well with it. I don't know that I've seen any increase uptick in infections or sepsis or anything like that from it as well as people using the catheter plugs. The right patient with a catheter plug can have a, a much better lifestyle than walking around with this bag of smelly urine on their leg and they do well. It's not for everybody because some people are not, you know, with it enough to make sure they're draining it all the time. Yeah, that's one thing I didn't mention in my presentation that you can um, plug the catheter and just have them unplug it to drain it. If you really trust them <laughs> to do, <laughs> make sure that they're going to empty their bladder. There's also flip valves that I've seen. So it's just a little, yeah. it's like a, a cap, but it's got a valve on it. They can open it and drain their bladder. Again, make sure you're really trusting that patient to be able to do that. Have you used any of those items, Lori? Oh, yeah. Definitely the flip valves, and we we let we have a fair amount of people that plug them. But again, like you said, it's for those people that will actually do it. And you can trust them to do it. I think the plugs are greatly beneficial for the guy who comes in, new patient, who went into acute urinary retention, most likely due to an enlarged prostate. They hate the catheter, so we switch it. We offer give the option: Do you want it to continue to drain into a bag, or would you like to try a plug? that you have to unplug and drain your bladder on a regular basis. I would say most people want the plug and we get them in very, very quickly after we start them on medical therapy and then they will come in for their cystoscopy, transrectal ultrasound, at which time the catheter comes out, they get avoiding trial, but it's a lot more convenient and more comfortable for the patient. When it comes to, go ahead. Oh, sorry. We also, it's really convenient for people to use the plug when they shower. Um, because a lot of people don't obviously want their bag wet or whatever, and you don't really want it disconnected to shower. So plugging it during showering is great too. Yeah. And for the male who, that, with the plug, he can kind of tuck everything in un under the underwear and you don't have to worry about something sticking out. It's a lot more comfortable and a lot more convenient. Um, Andrea mentioned something about foreskin and uh, retracting the foreskin and prepping the uh, glands prior to, and urethra prior to a Foley catheter insertion. It's, it's, I have some older patients who has phimosis. You can't retract the foreskin. If you are comfortable, if you're experienced enough, I've been able to drive a telescope or a cystoscope through the urethra without any problem. So if you have to, if you're comfortable, if you're experienced, you can try to do the best you can in the, in the skin prep and then insert a catheter without having to retract the foreskin. And uh, if, if you retract the foreskin, put the catheter in and forget to put it back, there's a condition called paraphimosis where you get horrible inflammation of the skin around the head of the penis and it's a lot of edema and it's difficult to pull it over the head of the penis. Uh, let's see. 
something about saline to using only saline to inflate the balloon. Uh, studies have been done actually uh, that uh, you don't have to, if, if you don't have saline, you don't have to use saline to inflate the balloon. It's not going to increase the risk of clotting the uh, drainage tubing for the uh, Foley balloon. And I routinely use saline in the OR when I, when I put in a catheter and, and uh, like say 30 cc's in a balloon after like say a TURP or TURBT procedure. Rather than using sterile water? Right. Or, or saline, yeah. Uh, or uh, yeah, rather than water, yeah, I use uh, saline without any issues. So I'll ponder this question to the group. Have you ever had this incidence where you go to take a catheter out of a patient and the balloon doesn't deflate? Yes. Oh, I have that, a great story. So that's this a whole is good that's information. It's a whole. <laughs> that's a whole so, uh... yeah. so of go course, ahead, you do the, the, the nice cutting of the port, you know, in half and, and the water will run out. I had this one gentleman that even though I did that, it still wasn't coming out. And so I went to the provider and I said, what do I do? He goes, don't do anything. Keep the patient here. It's going to deflate and fall out. So the patient just walked around, walked around. Sure enough, 10 minutes later, I go in there and it's gone. It, it slid right out. So it just has, it, you need patience, you know, cut the port, you know, and then just wait. It's going to fall out. <laughs> Sometimes. Sometimes. I've never yeah. had one that doesn't. <laughs> yeah, I have. So other option that I've done in that particular situation, you cut it, it doesn't drain and you've let them sit a while. Um, the thin wire that comes inside those, um, uh, I remember what that's called, the councils, those things that you pass through scopes. The glide wires. The glide wires. You can take the thin wire inside of it and sometimes knock loose whatever's obstructing it with that. That works. Um, the old fashioned thing, because I've been around a while, was to, to put some uh, ether into the port and the ether will melt latex. It just pops. The only problem with ether is you got to make sure that you use a glass syringe because if you use a plastic syringe, it'll melt. <laughs> <laughs> but it works. And the most reliable thing, we don't do ether anymore either, is since we uh, have a transrectal ultrasound, is just to pop the balloon with a needle through the ultrasound. You can easily aim at it just as you would anywhere else on the prostate. And you know it's empty, you know it's worked because you can see the balloon empty. Tricks of the trade. Can we speak about possibly bladder spasms? What do people's um when people have bladder spasms, what are you guys doing to help with that? Some people inflate the balloon more, some people deflate it more, some people put a bigger catheter in, some people, you know, obviously check for infection, but what do other people do? Any suggestions? Um, I will sometimes, instead of do, using 10 cc's, I'll just use five cc's. Sometimes I'll start the patient on an anticholinergic. Um, if it's safe, if they're older, I have used beta-3 agonists like Amirbetric or Gemteza as well um, to help calm the bladder down. And in a very rare occasion, BNO suppository in the outpatient setting for acute and severe bladder spasms. Yeah, I think that's a, BNO is one of those forgotten old old tricks of urology. I didn't even know they still had them. <laughs> there's, uh, in certain areas, there may be a shortage, like say at the local hospital here, there's a shortage of BNO, but post-op BNO works really well too. Yeah, good. Uh, Paula put in a couple more comments here. Um, they do a cystoscopic puncture of the balloon 
So I have seen that where you try to run a cystoscope through the alongside the balloon, uh, the catheter and puncture it cystoscopically. Nice uh, tip there. A Foley should not be a long-term option. The patient should be taught CIC. And I was going to throw that in as a, as a treatment for bladder spasms too. Sure. I mean, whenever possible, you don't, you want to avoid an involving catheter, but not every person is comfortable or competent or has the manual dexterity to insert a catheter. Can I, can I make a mention of the Coudé catheter? Sure. It is imperative that everyone understands in which orientation that Coudé goes into that male urethra. So if you don't know it or don't understand it, have someone show you. Uh, the, the key is to, if I'm facing you, you want to put the bend towards me like this, and it should go up towards my head. So that elbow should be towards me. So if I'm sideways, it should, it should go in in this orientation. It is really important to, to do that correctly or else you traumatize most likely the prosthetic urethra or at the bulbar urethra, you're going to hit, you're going to enter at the six o'clock position instead of going into the uh, prosthetic urethra. And Andrea, I know you know, um, you, you um, mentioned that nub that you keep um, by the, the port. A lot of catheters also have a line and that line should be on top. Yes. I think those are the intermittent catheters that have the line. I don't um, know. You can even see them on no. a lot of the Foley catheters. Too. Really? I yep. haven't yes. seen them. Yeah. But yeah, that's, yeah. A, that's a, some good points. Andrew, you talked about the artificial urinary sphincter and deactivation. Yeah. And mentioned getting urology, but I, I think it's if, if you know, we're all uro urologic professionals, we ought to be able to deactivate that too. Yeah, absolutely. And if there's any question, they have a really nice YouTube video on, on how to do it. Um, so, yeah, that's just a really important aspect. Yeah, just that you know how to make sure you have somebody who knows how to deal with it because you don't want it compressing on a catheter. And uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, what, one last thing about male catheter insertion techniques to get the catheter in without a lot of a, a lot of issues is so there's that valve that the external sphincter that valve that a man can voluntarily close which sometimes when you try to put a catheter in, it gets stuck there because of anxiety, because mm -hmm. you're anxious, the patient's anxious, and the patient closes off that valve. So some techniques to help him relax are to have him wiggle his toes, or when, they, when you know that they're tensing up, ask him to relax their buttock area and relax their legs. If you can feel their legs relaxing, their buttock area relaxing, all you have to do is Get to that point and then have them do those maneuvers and you will literally feel that catheter just plop right in and then you can go and rest it away. Often the, the discomfort is at the external sphincter. Yeah, that's a good point. Absolutely. And a lot of times we'll, we'll actually have the patients and we'll, we'll tell the patients, try to urinate. Just go ahead and try to pee mm -hmm. and then these things will relax. Absolutely. I agree. Dr. Lynn, that was great. I sometimes when I'm in the patient's room trying to insert a catheter, I'll tell them, release your abdomen, release your thighs, relax your belly, all of those things. And then the catheter will go in. And believe it or not, if you as the practitioner is anxious, your pheromones can induce fear 
among those around you. So the more comfortable you are, the more relaxed you are. No, literally, that's a survival oh, that's instinct. So the more relaxed you are, the more relaxed your patients will be. Just like the 22 vasectomies that I have scheduled this morning, the more relaxed I am, the more relaxed the patients will be. I always said the greatest thing that ever happened to me was gray hair because patients just have a trust on somebody with gray hair coming in versus <laughs> some young punk who's, yeah, I'm going to put your catheter in today. <laughs> they figure maybe this guy know what he knows what he's doing. It is really, really true. The, the, the degree of patient dis discomfort can be relative to the degree of the person doing the procedure's discomfort. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I like to do a lot of talking with my patients, get them on a subject that they like to talk about, and then it really relaxes them as well. That's true. These are all great tips because we do them every day and don't even think about the fact we're doing it. Yeah. And one other thought Go about, ahead. you know, we were talking about bladder spasms treatments, a non-medical one I think that we don't always think about is biofeedback. And I've had patients do that where they just, I tell them, you know, squeeze and relax your rectum, you know, like you're trying to stop yourself from passing gas five times. If you get a spasm, do it five times. A lot of times that biofeedback mechanism will relax the bladder spasm and it'll go away. No meds, no side effects, not hard to do. I like it. So if there's any other questions from the audience, please go ahead and submit those. If you don't have any questions, we're getting close to our 10 o'clock hour. I would like to invite everybody over to the after party. If you haven't been to the after party, you're missing out. This is, um, you go to euronurse.com. There'll be a big button that looks like what you're looking at right now. You click on it, you'll be instantly transported to the most fun you'll ever have today. <laughs> There's a selling, right? Yeah, it's always fun. Anything but goes there. Just, just hang out, ask any questions that you didn't ask, you want to ask, or comments you would like to share. You know, we're, we're all going to just kind of move over to that room next anyway. So we'll be there. Um, looking forward to it. Little uh, um, preview next week is going to be ED. So stay tuned for that. And uh, we've got some other good thoughts going on. So I'm in the process of adding a calendar to the Euro nurse. So you'll be able to look ahead and see what things are scheduled and um, look forward to getting new speakers and covering more product. Um, things that you guys want to hear about. So at this point, I'd like to say thanks to all my panelists. You're great as always. Really enjoy talking with everyone. Enjoy getting together. So we'll see all of you over in the other side at the after party. Thanks, Mike. Thanks, Bye, everybody. Thank you.